welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 76 for January 2018. That's right, it's a shiny new year here on Open Apple, and uh, we're all very excited to be back. Uh, we did have a little bit of a hiatus there, but uh, sometimes life happens. So thank you all for sticking with us. And uh, Mike, how are you doing? Um, well, hoping for a better 2018 than everyone had in 2017. <laughs> how about you? Good, good. I guess I guess I started off the new year uh, kind of uh, poorly because I, I already blew the opening. I was supposed to say I am co-host the first of Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is co-host the second, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? <laughs> I already answered that, Quinn. Yeah, well, see, now it's official. Oh, I see. How are you? <laughs> uh, I'm doing good. I've been uh, getting up to lots of uh, retro stuff lately, and awesome. uh, I'm pretty excited about some of the stuff we got uh, on the show here today, uh, including uh, two of our esteemed guests. Why don't you uh, introduce them? Well, sure. Um, one of these is a familiar voice to the, well, actually both of them are because they were both <laughs> on the very first episode of uh, Open Apple. Uh, Ken Gagney, welcome back to the show and to you as well. Andy Malloy, welcome. Um, you guys are here to talk to us about Juice GS and the upcoming year and all things Apple too. How are you? Good. Thank you for having us. Sure. It's been, uh, it's been, uh, it's been crazy how, how quickly that kind of goes away. I think, I remember uh, Ken and I, when, when you and I started this thing, we talked about like, well, we'll just kind of do this until there's nothing more to talk about. And so far, we have not only not run out of things, but we keep having too much to talk about every, every show. And I think that's a good thing. It's a good problem to have. Yeah. I'd just like to state that as far as I know, Andy's never been on the show. So. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> do we need to introduce not you two? And Quinn, this is Andy. Andy Quinn. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think we've. I think we've crossed paths. <laughs> <laughs> Seen each other in the halls of Kansas Fest. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, uh, why, don't, uh, why don't you guys talk about uh, what's going on in the Apple II? I want to maybe introduce yourselves a little bit, just uh, in case we have some new listeners or anyone who might not be familiar with you or both your uh, Apple II careers. Sure. Andy, you want to go first? Sure. Um, I am the assistant editor of JuiceGS. I've been that since about 2007. I uh, wrote a little bit for the magazine first, and then Ken brought me on. I mainly work on copy editing and work on uh, bouncing ideas back and forth with Ken. And it's uh, it really is a treat to work on this magazine. Uh, Andy has also written some fantastic reviews of books throughout the year. He just most recently reviewed, uh, which book was it? Was it Breaking Out? Yes, yes, the brand new one by David Craddock. Or Craddock. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And was you wrote a brute. Go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, Andy, I, so, Andy, you also wrote a great feature story a few years ago all about the Tiger Learning Computer, which I think a lot of our audience doesn't know about. Oh, and yes, I was inspired after, uh, I think it was my first Kansas Fest that somebody, I think his name was Jay, brought a Tiger to Kansas Fest, and I found one on eBay a year or two later, and finally, after probably 10 more years, 8 more years, actually wrote up a story on it. Is that uh, readable online any, anywhere? We did a we did a little bit of a blurb on the tiger a few months back. Uh, one of the I think uh, Blake Patterson at the Bite Seller bought one, and uh, so we wrote uh, we talked about it at that time. But uh, yeah, if there's stuff written online about it, we'd love to link to it. That article is not online, but Andy took a ton of great photos, which are online. Oh, great! Yeah, send us that link. We'll put it in the show notes. Great, we'll do. Thank you. So this is officially what Juice GS's 
23rd year? Is that, is that even possible? <laughs> Somehow it is. We have all been around that long. <laughs> well, and but by far the longest running Apple II magazine, yes? Perhaps not in terms of issues, but as far as years go, absolutely. Well, because you're quarterly, right? Not It's not a monthly thing. There are people who wish it was monthly, and then there are people like me and Andy who wish it was annual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine. Uh, I, I myself wrote a few articles uh, for JuiceGS a couple of years back, and I do remember uh, the, the amount of work that went into to behind the scenes to, to making it a successful venture. So congratulations to you guys for, for doing it for this long. Um, let's talk a little bit about the history of JuiceGS. Ken, when, when did you take over? Uh, let's see, when did I take over? So my very first issue as editor-in-chief was volume 11, issue 1, which if we are now in volume 23, that would have been 12 years ago, so 2006. Uh, March of 2006 was my first as editor, and then a year and a half later, September of 2007, was my first as publisher, which are two roles that in any mainstream publication would be entirely separated for very business and ethical-oriented reasons. Uh, but in the Apple II community, there are so few of us that we need to wear multiple hats. So I am now editor and publisher. And it's not just because we're an unethical community, right? <laughs> Ethics and retro computing, it's all about that. <laughs> oh, Corona. So Ken, how did you how did uh, how did you come to take over the magazine? Brute force, <laughs> a coup. <laughs> the the other right. editors were all weaker. It was a bloodless coup, fortunately. Now uh, Max Jones was the editor in chief. He was the founder of the magazine way back in '96, and he did it for six years. At which time he got promoted in his day job to editor in chief of the Tribune Star, the daily newspaper of Terre Haute, Indiana. And he didn't feel that he had the bandwidth to be editor-in-chief of two publications, so he handed off Juice GS, the editorship, to Ryan Suinaga and the publication, uh, or rather the role of publisher, to Eric Shepard of Syndicom. Those were the same role when Max was there. He was the editor and publisher. Then they split it out, and Syndicom became the publisher for about five and a half years. Uh, for those first four years, Ryan was the editor-in-chief, and I was his associate editor, the same role Andy has now with the magazine. And Ryan basically said, I am just doing this to keep it alive. I, this is not what I'm cut out for. And he was hoping that four years later, uh, I would take it over. I don't think he had that necessarily a timeline in mind, but he did say that that was basically his goal. And so four years later... I became editor-in-chief, and a year and a half later, Sheppy and I sat down at Kansas Fest, and he was starting to divest himself of various Syndicom properties back then, for example, A2 Central, which went to Sean Fahey, and Juice GS was one of those things he was looking to hand off, and so I wrested that from his grasp as well. <laughs> and were there any, um, was there, was there anything, was there anything surprising or unexpected about having to take over a magazine like this? I mean, it wasn't surprising that it ha happened, but I'm sure there are things I wasn't expecting, like uh, that, like people who will never stop asking, when, is you, when are you going to release it as a PDF magazine? <laughs> I'm like, I've answered that question so many times over the years, I'm hoping maybe someday they'll just stop asking, but uh, I guess I really shouldn't be surprised by that. No, I, I would say it took about... Four years to really get into the groove of being editor. I tried several different print houses, and there were some that had good quality but high prices, some that had low quality and low prices. 
and I finally found one about seven years ago. It's about a 45-minute drive from my house now, and they have both great quality and great prices, and they've been doing Juice GS for us for so long that they know exactly what to expect. I used to have to hand deliver a thumb drive with a PDF to whatever print shop I was using and have them print me a proof so I can see what it was going to look like so I could verify, yes, this is exactly as I intended. But with this print shop, they know what Juice GS is supposed to look like, and I can just send it to them and trust that's going to come out perfect. So that's been a nice evolution of that relationship. Uh, so I'm sorry, I have to ask, since you brought it up now, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering what the answer to the PDF question is. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. So in fact, just this morning, as we record this, I added a whole new page to the Juice.js website. Juice, uh, the website is www.juiced.js slash FAQ is the new page I've added. And one of the questions is, why isn't Juice.js available as a PDF? <laughs> Uh, there are a couple of answers. One is that, uh, well, first of all, we fully recognize and respect and appreciate the benefits of publishing as a PDF magazine. You know, lower distribution uh, costs, full color printing, easy indexing and archiving, etc. And that's why we have released the first 40 issues of JuiceGS as PDFs. We printed 88 issues. 40 of them are available as PDFs. And every now and then we uh, take some thematically related content from all our history and bundle it up into a juiced.js concentrate, as we call it. So you can buy a PDF (laughs) that is just about BBSs or just about interactive fiction or just about podcasting. Uh, So those are all available as PDF. The reason we don't release new issues as PDF are a couple fold. Uh, one is that surprisingly, there isn't actually a lot of demand for it in comparison to our print edition. In the 10 years that I've been publisher, our print subscriber base has actually quintupled, which is. Ooh, that's a nice number. Yeah. Or, you know, if I was speaking to your co host, it would be <laughs> Mike tuppled. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Sorry. Quintupling is much bigger than Mike tuppling, I think. Smoother. <laughs> I'll leave it to you two to figure that one out. <laughs> Uh, but also, the more subscribers we have, the more economical it becomes to publish JuiceGS because we get bulk discounts. And so if we were to release a PDF edition and a lot of our print subscribers flocked to that, then that might actually jeopardize the wealth and health of the print edition, and we might have to cancel that. Uh, some other reasons include that you know a print publication sitting on your coffee table is much easier to remember to read, whereas a PDF is something you can just download and archive and forget about. And also, when you are reading content online, there are over 100 websites about the Apple II, but there's only one print magazine, and that's something special and unique, and I'd hate to have to lose that. Have you, uh, have you given thought to releasing a PDF in addition to the print magazine? So I have thought about doing a, so, some sort of a combo bundle where you have to subscribe and you get the PDF and the print edition. But mm-hmm. I've had people tell me that they buy the print edition, and when it arrives, they pull out the staples, scan the issue into their iPad, and then throw the magazine away. <laughs> you know, and if people were forced into a bundle where they were getting the print edition just because they wanted the PDF, it kind of breaks my heart to think that they would be getting the issue in the mail and just throwing it away. <laughs> Sounds like they're doing that anyway. <laughs> <sighs> Thanks, Gwen. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I know I'm not helping. <laughs> It's fine. I use it's myself, fine. though. <laughs> so uh, there must be 
two, I feel like there must be two sets of unique challenges for GCS in this day and age, both being a print magazine, which frankly is, is you know, much less common of a thing than it used to be. And also, of course, being a, a magazine about Apple too. Can you talk about sort of what's unique about those two sets of challenges? What was the first challenge again? Just being a, a print magazine at all in 2017. Oh, sure. Or even 2018. <laughs> Yes, that too. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I have an up. I keep writing the wrong number on things in my head. It's fine. This is the month of checkuary. Yes, you write the wrong dates on your checks. Although, who's writing checks anymore? I don't know. Yes. Uh, so actually, you're right that the, this economy has been dramatic, and this industry has been dramatically altered by. Uh, online distribution, digital distribution. A lot of magazines have folded. Even the magazine I used to work at, Computer World, which had been around since the 60s, has since gone digital only. But the area of magazine publishing that is actually doing quite well is niche magazines, like things about very specific topics, like uh, model railroads, for example. You know, mm -hmm. Magazines about that are doing really well. And I think that's because a, there are so few places to get that information. They have so little competition. Competition, and two, that when you're already spending that much money on a hobby, what's a little bit more to get the magazine? So I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen our subscriber base do so well is because the people who grew up with the Apple II or who were using it when it first came out are now old enough to have enough disposable income to indulge in nostalgia, and they can get back into their hobby with the Apple II or with JuiceGS. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. And uh, what is unique about uh, being an Apple II magazine? <sighs> well, there aren't... I would say the challenges of being an Apple II magazine are A, having people who want to write the content, B, people who want to read the content, and three, there being enough content to produce. I've always said that those are my three challenges. If I can get those three things, then we'll stay in publication. So people who want to write the content include not only our staff, but also our freelance writers. Uh, the staff are people who are on an email list. There isn't necessarily an obligation for them to produce content, but they are consulted on all the content and they do write quite a bit. Whereas our freelance writers, they might just write a one-off I might reach out to them because they have an area of expertise or they gave a presentation at Kansas Fest that I really liked and I wanted them to present on that. And we've actually had a great growing cast of writers. We Our last 15 issues, that's almost four years worth of issues, each of those 15 cover stories were written by a different writer. We had 15 different writers contributing cover stories to our magazine, including yourself, Quinn. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. I think I might have another piece upcoming. Absolutely, um, <laughs> yeah. So, spoilers. So, so we definitely have the people to write the content. And as evidenced by how many pages we're publishing, there's enough to write about. We have a minimum of 20 pages per issue. That's what we've committed to our subscribers to. That's what they're paying for. But every single issue we did in 2017 was 24 pages. A few years ago, we even did our first ever 28-page issue. So that's pretty exciting. And of course, people to read the content, well, we've had a quintupling of our subscriber base, so that doesn't seem to be an issue either. Yeah, that, I'm glad you you mentioned the the writer the the cast of writers because uh, that's something I, that I find really interesting about it. You know, a sort of a traditional magazine, maybe in the '80s or whatever, there would be 
a, a small core staff of writers speaking to a very large audience. Uh, but as you know, the staff of writers or your, your selection of writers has grown on GCS and the community has frankly shrunk. Uh, it's now much more sort of uh, everyone in the community kind of talking to each other. Like whenever I read an issue, it's always people I know writing the articles now, which is really nice. It's sort of like a community community theater, but in magazine hmm. form. Yeah, we don't want to rely just on people who come to Kansas Fest or just people who post on Facebook. You know, we, we, we reach out to people on Twitter, on CSA2, anybody who is knowledgeable and has something that they want to share. And it's also better for the magazine. As you said, it really is much more reflective of the various voices in the community and how much bigger the community itself has gotten. And also allows me to focus on making a better magazine because it gives me more time to edit. If you were to go back to volume 13, which is 2008, I wrote all four cover stories, which was exhausting, and I'm sure the editing suffered as a result. So now I have more time to do the things that I need to do to get the magazine out the door. And of course, Andy is a huge help with that too, because he sees every single article at least twice. First, when it gets submitted as a Microsoft Word file, and it's not laid out yet. And then again, after it's laid out, and he makes sure that no errors have crept in during the layout phase as well. His assistance is invaluable. So Andy, how did how did you get involved with uh, with the magazine? Then? Um, I had been uh, writing a few pieces for the magazine. I think I started out uh, with my first book review back in 2006. And that was, uh, I think it was a book about Steve Wozniak, Return of the Prodigal Son to Silicon Valley, which was a little paperback. And I brought it with me in 2003 and Woz autographed it. So that was a great way to get back into the community for me anyway. Um, but I had been doing copy editing on a, a, a local newsletter for many years here. And I don't know how, Ken, I don't know if you remember how you broached the topic with me, but, um, you know, perhaps I don't know if I submitted a, some copy edits on a different article that was in that issue, but um, we just clicked and, and started doing it each issue. You know, Andy, I remember at Kansas Fest, 2016, you and I have been roommates for over a decade now, and one night we were sitting in our room, and I turned to you and I said, how did you get to be my associate editor? <laughs> and neither of us had any idea. <laughs> we still have, we've lost that history, haven't we? <laughs> no, it's kind of like, it's, it's like in Total Recall, where somebody just implanted this memory and to, to insert you into my life, and I don't know how it happened, but you've always been there. <laughs> I think somebody, maybe uh, Ryan crept into our room at Kansas Fest and like whispered in both of our ears and implanted <laughs> like a Inception suggestion. Oh, great. No, but didn't you say you just uh, this weekend went back and found your very first issue as associate editor? Yeah, I did. It was uh, the summer of 2007. So it was the June issue. So that would have been right before Kansas Fest, which means we must have been okay, working so together just a little bit before that. So that was my sixth issue as editor and my last issue not as publisher. Okay. Interesting. So did you guys meet at Kansas Fest? We did. Was it 2000? No, you missed the Waz year, right? No, that was my first year. That's what lured me there. Oh, okay. That's right. That's right. So that was your first year. And I think, yeah, I remember you were already a Juicy yes subscriber because you showed up at Kansas Fest and I'd never met you. And you started like telling me what I do for a living. I was like... 
I have a creepy stalker here. And then you reminded <laughs> me I'd written about it in Juice GS. <laughs> well, I, I've known about Kansas Fest and you. I um, have an Apple website I started in 1998 that was uh, basically collected books about the history of Apple. So I'd kind of, kind of been involved since then, but I never went to any sort of the public community events until I made it to Kansas Fest. Yeah, and then you, and you and I have been to many other events since then. Not only the classic arcade in New Hampshire, Fun Spot, but we also went to VCF East together a few years ago, and of course, PAX East in Boston every spring. Yeah, I look forward to uh, these annual traditions we have every year. I, in fact, I think one year, Andy, you and I collaborated with Paul Hagstrom and Wayne Arthurton to deliver an Apple II to PAX East. Oh, I remember when you, you put out the call to try to assemble all the pieces. And I mean, it was going to be a, a game system that people would use. So you needed to find joysticks and floppy drives and, and, and games to play on the original floppies. Yeah, it was a it was a great coronation of effort. I actually contributed nothing in the end. I feel like <laughs> the character from that children's book with the stone soup where I just throw the stone and everybody else puts everything else in. <laughs> I get to enjoy it. Uh, but yeah, so we were able to bring an Apple II to the game room that packs so that everybody could enjoy it. And that same Apple II is now in the National Video Game Museum down in Frisco, Texas. Hmm. That's. Uh, I'd like to hear more about that. I didn't actually realize there was ever an Apple II at uh, at a PAX event. Um, do you know like what what games were there for people to play, and did it get a lot of use? I'm told it got a lot of use. I, every time I walked in the room, people were playing it. They were playing uh, Karateka, Castle Wolfenstein. I don't remember all the games we made available. Probably Load Runner was there. Uh, but basically, there is a classic console room at PAX East. This is the Penny Arcade Expo in Boston. And anybody can walk in and play Nintendo, Atari, ColecoVision, and Television. It's just all stuff that's been donated and which... I don't know if it gets picked back up by the donor at the end of the weekend or if it belongs to PAX, but we spoke with Joe Santuli, who was putting together the room that year, and he gladly accepted an Apple II, so we carried it over from our hotel room. I think Wayne Arthurton is the one who gave the actual uh, computer itself, and then we just got together a bunch of floppy disks, probably off eBay or something, and dropped it off. And then do you know what became of it between, did it go straight from there to the museum in Texas or? Not directly because Joe Santulli, who was organizing the Classic Console Room, went on to run a Kickstarter and then found the National Video Game Museum. So there were a couple of years between when we donated the Apple II to him and when he created the museum. I think it was part of his roadshow in the meantime. So he would go to other events that were looking to have some sort of a Classic Console Room and he'd set up the Apple II there. So it just traveled with him. Okay. So as far as you know, there hasn't been an Apple II then at PAX since, or has there been one? I haven't seen one. No, have you, Andy? No, I haven't seen one either. We'd, we'd probably have to initiate it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if all the ones you donate end up in Texas, that, that could get expensive. <laughs> um, so uh, switching gears a little bit here, uh, recently JuiceGS has been, been able to sell some software products as well. Do you, Ken, would you like to talk about that? Sure. So that's been an exciting development for JuiceGS is getting into sort of the software publication or distribution business. And that started about three years ago when Mike Westerfield of the Byteworks, who I met at my very first Kansas Fest back in 98, he posted a message on Facebook saying he was looking to make his development tools available again. Uh, that would be Orca, Opus, etc. 
These had been available from an online retailer, but the availability had become limited and they were not available as downloadable products, only as CD, which wasn't really economical for today's development purposes. So I reached out to him and I said, you know, JuiceGS used to be published by Syndicom. You've worked with Syndicom before. I would love to establish a direct relationship with you and sell your products online. So we hammered out a deal. It was uh, actually more generous than I expected. He was a, a great uh, collaborator in that respect. He sent me all his media files that he had from 2000, which was the last time he had made an arrangement like this. I packaged it all up, put it online, and it's been selling quite well ever since then. And that also established a precedent for other vendors. So last summer, Kelvin Sherlock reached out to me. You may know him from such games as G. Shizen, for example. And he said that he had developed a uh, cross-environment cross development tool for the Orca products, and he wanted to sell it online for just a mere $10. Uh, fi- uh, that it would be digital distribution only, unlike Orca, which is available as CD or USB. And so I said, sure. So we put that online, and that has sold quite well. And is that the Golden Gate uh, product? Yes, it was originally also called Orca, all lowercase, but that was very confusing, which Andrew Rowan <laughs> rightly pointed out. And uh, we did, so for about a week, it was called Orca, but then we all collectively came to our senses <laughs> and renamed it Golden Gate. <laughs> yes, boo to case-sensitive product names. <laughs> well, you know, this is the first time I've had to talk about it on a podcast, and I just now realize in case sensitivity doesn't come across in audio. No. <laughs> and one had a one, and one was a lowercase l. It was just it was chaos. <laughs> terrible, terrible. Uh, so, and yeah, actually, uh, you know, I'm a proud owner of both Golden Gate and uh, and uh, the Opus set uh, from, from GCS. I purchased the uh, the online uh, versions, which was, or the downloadable versions, which was really nice to not have to dust off my CD drive. Uh, and I think uh, people might find you might find actually increased interest in that because uh, you know Jeremy Rand uh, has put together an Apple IIgs cross development uh, build pipeline for uh, Macs that uses Xcode and uh, leans heavily on the uh, Golden Gate and uh, Orca toolchain. So uh, that's that's why I got it. So I wouldn't be surprised if you uh, sell some more for that reason. Yeah, I believe Jeremy even uh, wrote an article for JuiceGS about three years ago, which predates Golden Gate, about using Xcode to cross-compile CC65 code. And mm-hmm. I, as you mentioned, I believe he has now updated it to incorporate Golden Gate as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing yeah, I'll he, mention, yeah. though, is that a lot of people actually do still order the CD version, which is the biggest pain in the butt. <laughs> Uh, when I was first negotiating with Mike Westerfield, I said, I don't want to sell CDs. I, it's just too much of a, an, an annoyance to have to burn them and on a computer that doesn't have its own CD or DVD drive and then print out a label for it and then package it and mail it. Uh, but Mike Westerfield insisted, and again, rightfully so, because people have demanded it. But then hmm. Kevin Savitz turned me on to this online service called Kunaki, K-U-N-A-K-I, where you basically upload your disk image to them, and anytime you have an order, you just go to your own internal private store, you click which of your products you need mailed and to whom, and they charge you the cost of shipping plus a dollar and ten cents. Hmm. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I mean, for the amount of time it saves me, and also now that I don't need to keep blank CDRs in stock and CD mm-hmm. labels, it's well worth it. Hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm honestly surprised. I would have to really dig through my junk pile to find a 
a CD drive attached to a device. I don't, I'm not even sure how I'd read a CD right now if I needed to. But then how do you rip your CDs? Your music? <laughs> yeah. I, ironically, it's easier for me right now to read a five and a quarter inch floppy than a CD-ROM. I mean, I have, I'm in arm's length from several <laughs> floppy drives. So next time I go to a concert and I go to the merch table, I'm going to be looking for the band's album on floppy disk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good, good thinking. I'll mail that to you. Yeah, maybe 8-Bit Weapon will do that. Nice. <laughs> so uh, sort of on that subject then, uh, so is it, I mean, one of the challenges of a print magazine must be, you know, the, the logistics of it. How, how is it to pack up and label and ship all these magazines every quarter? Also a pain in the butt and something Andy has been thankfully saved from. He's never had to do that. It all falls <laughs> over here. Yep. Uh, you know, it was quite manageable when I was first publisher and our subscribers were, you know, in the double digits. But now the operation hasn't really scaled to quintuple the number of subscribers. So uh, I have some very good friends, uh, colleagues from Computer World formerly, who get together with me four times a year and we just spend the entire evening stuffing envelopes with magazines to bring to the post office the next day. But before we even get to that point, we need to put the customer's address label, my return address label, the do not bend stamp, and also the postage, which is a game unto itself because an international envelope currently for the next two weeks costs $4.21, and there is no $4.21 stamp. (laughs) So so I need to buy two $2 stamps, uh, let's see, two... 10 cent stamps, I think. No, no. It's like a 15 cent stamp, a 5 cent stamp, and a 1 cent stamp. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and so every you time. Know, the, you can't, you can't use a postage meter for that? So there, you're right. There are postage meters, there's stamps.com, stuff like that. A lot of them charge a monthly fee. And our mm. subscription, our magazine, is only quarterly. And so right. it doesn't make sense to pay for those eight months out of the year that I'm not using it. So yeah, you're in a tough spot between being too big to do by hand, but not big enough to invoke all these sort of at scale tools that exist. Right. So we have spoken with our magazine printing company, and they're going to start printing directly onto the envelopes, the return address, the customer's address, and the do not bend stamp, which just leaves the postage. And I believe, to mention his name again, because he comes up on every podcast, Kevin Savitz, he (laughs) mentioned, I think, some stamps.com competitor called Andicia? Andicia? And they, he says they don't charge a monthly fee, so I need to look into that. Okay. Well, the takeaway for me here is if I ever need some weird service uh, done online, I should talk to Kevin Savitz. <laughs> that is a very accurate takeaway. Yes. I need to pack and ship ponies remotely, internationally. Is there a website <laughs> where I can do that? Help me, Kevin. <laughs> there probably is. <laughs> well, doesn't he run like a blank paper company as well? Yes, uh, he runs freeprintables.net, I believe is the address. And if I get that wrong, he's going to skewer me. Uh, yeah, Wait, so they he, print blank paper? I guess that's <laughs> and that is the correct URL, and it's one of over 100 domains he has where you can download you know, free thank you cards, free business letters, free fax cover letters, free puzzles, free spreadsheets. Uh, free grid paper. Anything you need is just a free download off his website. I'm imagining him sitting in a room holding down the form feed button on a dot matrix <laughs> printer. Producing yeah, blank sheets. That's pretty much it. It's not the most efficient way to do it, but 
<laughs> Charming. It's, it has a retro feel to it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what's, uh, uh, what's the future for GSGS? Where do, you, where do you see things going in the next couple of years? Well, I hope Andy will stick around. I can't do it without him. Yeah, I'm, I'm committed for the long term. Well, history would suggest he's not going anywhere. Quicker to list the things you guys have not done together. That's true. That's true. Uh, let's see. The future of GCS. We don't often have huge plans. It's usually just taking it as it comes. You know, I think our the most recent big change to our magazine was probably about eight, seven, or eight years ago when we started printing our covers in color, which was a lot of. Uh, it was really exciting to do that. It's really dramatically changed the outward appearance. We had to come up with all new templates. And also it changes how we use the back cover because that's also printed in color. We used to put text and columns and stories on the back, but it doesn't make sense to print black and white stories in color. Uh, I don't see any future changes to the format of the magazine, but two of my goals for this year are to produce more of those concentrates I mentioned, the thematic PDFs. We haven't done those very often, but they really do help uh, buoy the budget for our print publication. Because as we mentioned, PDFs have such a low uh, expense, and when it's content that we've already edited... It's uh, very easy to bundle it together. And we have some great themes. We published a lot of stories last year about dial-up bulletin board systems. And I think that would be a great PDF, as Andy suggested to me. And the only other change I think I see coming is I would love to do a website redesign. Uh, the, The current WordPress website is still using the same theme it launched with about seven or eight years ago. Uh, I tried to redesign it last year, but I kept getting vetoed by Andy. He didn't like the changes. (laughs) Sorry, Ken. (laughs) <laughs> well, like you, you, you kept saying, like, oh, can can you just like make the margin here a little bit smaller and make these images a little bit bigger? And I made all the changes <laughs> until it looked exactly like the current website. <laughs> wow, this is getting awkward. Uh... I, I was like, what was the point of this? Help me out here. Uh, I guess you had. <laughs> so a... finally, finally, I just finally I just installed the old original theme and I sent it to him. And I'm like, how are these changes? And you're, and you're like, perfect. I love it. <laughs> That's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like it's like a story from clients from hell.net. <laughs> anyway. So uh you've uh, you've done some innovative things uh in in recent history with GSGS including uh shipping out a, a floppy disk. Uh do you have any more uh things like that uh in in store? Oh my gosh, mailing floppy disks was so much fun. <laughs> We've done that twice now, uh, five and a quarter inch floppy disks. Uh, the second, the most recent time we did it had a huge help from so many people. Uh, there was a lot of content on there that was contributed that people gave permission to include. Uh, Dagan Brock designed an original game just for us mm-hmm. to put on that floppy disk. David Schmidt did a lot of the, do you call it burning when it's a floppy disk? Uh, writing, I guess. I don't know. M- mass reproduction. He helped Carving. with that. Uh, and then we shipped them all out, and it was a lot of fun. Although, Quinn, you may remember there was one person on Facebook that was very disgruntled that we did not package the floppy disk to his specifications. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, there was quite a quite a kerfuffle, as I recall, over uh, some people uh, not being sufficiently satisfied with the uh, the efforts there. Yeah, I believe your contribution to the conversation was the sense of entitlement in this conversation is overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I yeah. I mean, I don't remember exactly what all happened, but it is pretty uh pretty hard to stomach uh, complaints <laughs> about someone well, shipping you a floppy disk in 2018 or 2017 or whenever that was. Well, that's just it. I didn't ship it to him. The person complaining wasn't a subscriber. Oh, <laughs> it's right even better. Yeah. So Oh gosh. So just to fill people in, we what the, the two times we have mailed five and a quarter inch floppy disks, we just put them right in the magazine with no like cardboard or anything, and we just hope that the pages of the magazine will protect it during shipping. That and the do not bend stamp. Every now and then, something goes awry, and out of hundreds of floppy disks, one or two got bent, and we provided free replacements as well as a downloadable disk image to those who complained or who, who had that experience. The reason we don't package it properly is not because we don't know better, it's because JuiceJS subscribers are paying to receive a magazine and nothing else. And so we had no budget by which to include anything else, and we did the floppy disk anyway just for fun. If it was something that they had paid for, then yes, absolutely. Just like when we mail uh, Mike Westerfield CDs, we package everything up properly so that the customer can get the product they paid for. But since this was a freebie that we were just throwing in, we did it on a shoestring budget, and 99% of the time, that worked fine. That's all. It sounds like you should be sending out CDs. They don't bend, and apparently everybody wants them. <laughs> we also have we also have JuiceGS thumb drives, a limited number of those, which I thought would be more popular because it has our logo on it, but nobody seems to want them. <laughs> and those are hard to bend. Trust me, I've tried. <laughs> Easy to break, but hard to bend. Uh, so I think we don't have anything like that coming up. The last time we did it, it was specifically to coincide with an interview we published with 4AM. Not that our floppy disk was necessarily copy protected, but we just felt like, how can we talk about 4AM and not include a floppy disk? <laughs> did he crack it? <laughs> uh, I, I'm sure he has by now, yes. Or she. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Andy, do you have any big plans that I don't know about for JuiceGS? Um, no, I always run them by the editor if I've got any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, that guy. <laughs> well, here's your opportunity. What would you like to run by me? Um, well, I just think as long as we can keep doing the mix that we've been doing. I mean, this just this past year we've had, you know, we still have the hard, new hardware reviews, software, game reviews. Um, we're still interviewing people from the past, so we're getting history in there. As long as we can keep that mix going, um, you know, I think that's a long-term um, s- stable way to keep the magazine going. And if we're going to throw little feelies and stuff in there, I think it's neat to have it come as a total surprise. So I like that even I, <laughs> as the assistant editor, don't know about them. <laughs> <laughs> surprise! Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll second that, Andy. I mean, I I, I really appreciate the mix, uh, and it's something you know that we try to do here on Open Apple. Also, is because it's very easy to get just sucked into the history and nostalgia and have the whole show be about how great everything was or how things were. Uh, but there's so much new going on, and and the community is vibrant, and you know, so we try to try to mix in both. Uh, so you know, the moral of the story is is be like Open Apple. <laughs> A good act to follow. You know, one more one one more thing I would like to do is what often happens is we receive six to eight articles per issue, and Andy and I look at them and we decide which one of them should be the cover story. It's not too often that a story is actually written with the intention of being the cover story, and we have a kind of feature that we've only done a few times. It's called an Apple Core. And we've written three of them. And each of those was a cover story. One was about interactive fiction. 
One was about how Apple II users use Kickstarter. And then the other was about the 50th anniversary of AppleSoft Basic, or actually just Basic itself. I would love to do more big stories like that. I have one in mind, which would be about Patreon. And that's it. I've had that idea for about a year, and these ideas can be so big that that's how long it takes. But when I am pitching stories to art- to magazines like Computer World or wherever, these are the kinds of stories that I am pitching. And so I need to pitch more of those stories to my own magazine or get other people to pitch them because I love these big ideas that incorporate multiple voices and interview multiple people and like when Steve Weirich wrote the basic story, just pulls in a lot of history and a lot of references. Uh, so that's what I would like to see more of. So if someone wants to be the cover story, can they bribe you? Is there payola? Uh, actually, it goes the <laughs> other way. If they write a cover story, I pay them. <laughs> better. Yeah, yes. I want it there to be payola, though. It's the, you know, the Apple II community where even the corruption is nostalgic. <laughs> I hope that didn't happen back in the day, did it? <laughs> I don't know. No, just tell, Certainly just Paola tell me. did, but I, t- I can't speak to the Apple II magazine community. <laughs> tell me it didn't happen. I, I just can't have my foundation rocked like that. <laughs> well, uh, maybe we'll, we'll have uh, Margot Comstock on the show and we'll ask her if it there you go. <laughs> ever there took, you go. took bribes. <laughs> or Mike Harvey. There you go. Uh, all right, Mike, uh, any last questions for our esteemed guests? Uh, yeah, so guys, looking back over the years, um, just off the top of your heads, what was your favorite one or two articles? Oh, ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I love all Same my mind. children equally. <laughs> Same mine. Same no, mine. no, no, you don't get Same to mine. That. Same mine. <laughs> well, Quinn's article and Mike's article, <laughs> oh, especially. Ugh, well, you know, Mike, you wrote a cover story for us in December of 2010. The title was The Apple Three in Your Apple Two. And then exactly seven years later, December of 2017, Martin Hay wrote an article, The Apple II in Your Apple Three. <laughs> That's right. Nice. Yeah, I don't Coming think soon he... from Quinn Dunkey, why the Apple Three is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and then we can bundle Shortly it all together that... into a PDF. Great. Yeah. Shortly after that, why Quinn was fired from Open <laughs> That's right. And that's how I got kicked off of a podcast. <laughs> what about you, Andy? Anything come to mind? Um, I really enjoyed Martin Hay wrote a a, a series that was is like a fictional detective story about an Apple II mm, mystery. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I just was totally enjoyed that. And um I guess and then the last year the two articles on BBSs that Mike Whalen wrote, um, how to get back into using them and then how to actually do your own, um, were just really I thought those were excellent and inspired me to go back and do some stuff with that. Yeah. Yeah, I I really enjoyed Martin Hayes. I'll also mention an article that was published December of 2012 by Randy Brandt, who talked about how he helped transition this watch repair company in New York City from using his own AppleWorks macros into a more modern web-based service. And of course, that also is thanks to you, Mike, because you helped bring Randy back into the Apple II community and to Kansas Fest. Well, you did too. That wasn't just me. Uh, 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 you know how my my memory is. I don't remember that. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> yeah, that is a fascinating story. He talked about that on uh, here on Open Apple as well. Uh, so yeah, it was that has to be one of the largest migrations in history. I think as far as yeah. jumping a span of time, you know, I struggled to get files migrated from Sierra to High Sierra, and here he is migrating files <laughs> thirty years. <laughs> Yeah, and I love the cover that Peter Neubauer designed for that issue. He took a Creative Commons image off 
Flickr and made it Apple II themed. And also <laughs> Jeff Weiss has been doing some great covers for us. He did the BBS covers that uh, Andy mentioned Mike Whalen wrote the story, but Jeff Weiss did the cover. And then he also did this hilarious cover for, I think it was your coverage of Kansas Fest, Quinn. Was, was that the one where we were all running away on the baseball field? I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we have this character from Task Times and Tone Town just like bursting mm-hmm. out from a parallel dimension coming after us. Uh, so much fun. <laughs> I like the photo when we're all in the dugout acting scared. I think that yeah. was that was some Oscar level material right there. The, the rejected cover, yes. <laughs> so guys, um I don't know that we have too many listeners that aren't already subscribers, but in case we do, how would they subscribe? Can they buy back issues, all that stuff? Yeah, they can go to www.juiced.gs, which is our website, and they can subscribe. If they subscribe for 2018, then it becomes effective with the first issue, that which, mar- which mails in March of 2018, and that is $19 for customers in the United States, $24 for those in Canada and Mexico, and $27 everywhere else. Those three prices include shipping. If they want to buy back issues, they are $16 per year, and each year is four issues, and that does not include shipping. Uh, And then, of course, those first 10 years, those first 40 issues, are available as PDFs, and those, I believe, cost $12, and that does include shipping. Yeah, we'll have all that linked in the show notes for sure. Well, thank you. All right, guys. Well, uh, thank you for coming on and uh, giving us a little uh, insider's look at how things work at JuiceGS. And guys, it was nice talking to you again. Thanks. It was was great uh, to be here. And thank you both for keeping Open Apple going. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, We'll see you both at KFest this year. Yeah. And thank you for giving us 45 minutes of, you know, shameless plugs. We appreciate it. (laughs) Sure. Uh, sure. And and also for, like Andy said, keeping Open Apple going. 76 episodes, I think. That is astounding. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Mm, Thank you. We appreciate that. When Andrea Barber grows up, she's going to publish a newspaper. But then that's what she's doing right now. Kids are going to freak when they see this. Chris Stahl wants to pilot a jet plane. In fact, he's already flying one. And when Hakeem grows up, he's going to be a record producer. A child with an Apple II computer quickly learns there's no use putting off until tomorrow what you can do today. All right. Well, thanks, Ken and Andy. That was great. Uh, JuiceGS is a staple of the community, so it's uh, great to hear from two of the folks that uh, lead that effort. Absolutely. Yep. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, jump into some news here. It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II News. Let's see, the first item I've got here is uh, an Apple II Plus in an FPGA. Uh, FPGA's field programmable gate arrays are what all the kids are playing with nowadays. And, uh, you know, it seems like we've seen a lot of these types of things, people making Apple IIs out of, you know, modern microcontrollers, various other things. Um, So this is uh, another one of those. Uh, This one is a bit interesting. It's a little more than the usual student project because... uh, so first of all, there is a uh, disk uh, emulator built into it, which is kind of nice. You don't usually see that since that's kind of one of the hardest parts of the process. Mm. 
And uh, the other interesting thing about it is that uh, he built it. This is uh, Stephen Edwards. Uh, we'll link to the article over on Hackaday. He built it specifically to demonstrate how much more power efficient modern electronics are, which is pretty interesting. So, you know, the FPGA board, in addition to having this extremely complex uh, silicon on it, has got, uh, you know, some various displays built in. It's got the SD card. It's got Wi-Fi. It's got Ethernet, various other things all running. Uh, and the whole thing uses about five watts. And uh, he compares that uh, pretty fairly using one of these like kilowatt things that you plug into the wall. Uh, he compares that to an Apple II with uh, no monitor and no disk drive, just the machine itself uh, running the same code, a uh, little low-res uh, graphics demo. And uh, the Apple II clocks in at 22 watts. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, the FPGA is doing probably a couple of bajillion times as much work and <laughs> using an order of magnitude less power. So uh, yeah, uh, science and progress and all that. Pretty amazing. So if you put an Apple II Plus on an FPGA, what would you then do with that FPGA? Uh, write an article for Hackaday about it. Uh, <laughs> it's Yeah, it's I don't know how useful it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, because you, uh, yeah, you can't do a whole lot with it. Um, I think he put, he put the code in just from his disk emulator off an SD card. There's no keyboard or anything, so you can't really use it as an emulator or anything like that. So this is just, a, just kind of a toy project. Uh, it's also about the most expensive way, I think, to get an Apple II Plus because, uh, you know, these FP FPGAs are expensive and the dev boards that you have right. to buy yeah. to program them, uh, this dev board that he used is about $400. So <laughs> I think you can buy six Apple II Pluses on eBay for that. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't consider it a cost-efficient way uh, to get into the hobby, uh, but uh, it's neat. And he has shared uh, the core files and so on. If you want to play with uh, FPGAs and Apple II-related things yourself, you, uh, you certainly can. And he's got a nice write-up about uh, some of the challenges um, uh, that were sort of unique to uh, uh, to the Apple II uh, implementation. One thing I like about the article that he wrote is he describes Apple IIs and 80s computers in general in the same way that I always describe them, which is that they were video generators uh, with a little bit of computer-related stuff glued onto them, uh, you know, because generating, <laughs> generating the video was by far the hardest part of what these old computers did. And so most of the hardware was in some way dedicated to <clears throat> producing a video signal. And then, you know, because the CPU and the RAM and stuff, so that's, that's, that's easy. You know, they're just off-the-shelf <laughs> chips and you stick them in there. But uh, the graphics is the hard part. Hmm. Well, there's certainly somebody said something to be said for doing a thing for the sake of doing it, I guess. Yep. Yeah, climbing mountains because they're there and all that. Here's another mountain, in fact, that you have to talk about. <laughs> yeah, so why stop there? Uh, uh, <laughs> someone else has done something very similar. Uh, Smooth transitions. Yeah, oh, it's like we went to Segway school. Um, and I keep using that joke, but it's been a few months, so I get yeah, to use it works it every time. Yeah. Uh, this next person has uh, gone a little further back in time and produced an Apple One on an ESP8266. So if you're not in the sort of packing maker community, you might not know what that thing is. Uh, the ESP8266 is, it's kind of become uh, a hobbyist uh, dev board along the lines of the Arduino or the Raspberry Pi, things like that. Sure. Uh, but what it actually is, is just a Wi-Fi chip. And uh, it was produced, uh, they, they got popular because they're incredibly inexpensive. Like, you know, you can get them in, uh, in bulk for like a dollar. Uh, and they were just intended as a little module that you could stick in like a refrigerator to, you know, add Wi-Fi to your fridge because everything has to be have Wi-Fi in it now, right? The, the Internet of Things and all that. Of course. So this thing is literally it's produced in the billions by, you know, factories in China just to add Wi-Fi to 
everything. And but the funny thing about it, a thing, funny thing about it is that Wi-Fi uh, and you know TCP/IP stacks and all that stuff are pretty processor intensive to produce. So the thing actually has quite a fast uh, microcontroller built into it. And it's not really accessible. It's just there to produce and drive the networking. But uh, people pretty quickly figured out uh, how to unlock access to that microcontroller and program it. And so it has enough, uh, you know, it has more RAM than the Arduino does. And, you know, so it's actually a pretty powerful little dev board once you unlock it. So the uh, community is built up around this thing. And uh, uh, someone has uh, produced an Apple One on it. So... Uh, there's a nice little uh, write-up associated with it, kind of about uh, a lot about the technical details of the Apple One and what was unique about it. Uh, now, this is a microcontroller, so this is a software emulation of it rather than, uh, you know, uh, an FPGA or something like that. And, uh, uh, you know, what was interesting about the Apple One, of course, is that it didn't come with a keyboard. Uh, it came with instructions uh, for how to build a keyboard. <laughs> and so for uh, this ESP, uh, P8266 implementation rather than like create some sort of keyboard and attach it to GPIO pins or something. Uh, he's taking advantage of the fact that this is in fact a Wi-Fi module, so it has Wi-Fi. And so he created uh, sort of a separate process that uses the Wi-Fi to uh, create a, a serial connection. And so you can tell that into it and use <laughs> that as your keyboard. So the Apple One is none the wiser that it's getting keyboard input through a Telnet connection over Wi-Fi. Uh, you know, it must be one of the most sophisticated Apple One implementations ever. Uh, and it's uh, it's a pretty neat thing. Uh, it's got the, uh, there's pictures of it here running uh, the, the classic uh, demo that renders WAS in uh, ASCII text and uh, some of the other <laughs> fun things that people do with uh, Apple Ones. And it's got a, a radio frequency out on it so you can plug it into very old TVs. Uh, I have no idea how I would display a radio frequency signal if I had to today, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a neat thing, especially if you're into the uh, ESP8266. Uh, yeah, it feels kind of like a very long drive to take a very short walk. <laughs> yeah. And good for you, I guess. Um, yeah, no, yeah. It's really cool coming up with the clever ideas like that. And hey, it's even uh, Spectre and Meltdown proof. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I just gave a presentation on that at work, actually. That's uh, oh, did you? <laughs> quite the fascinating set of vulnerabilities. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, I actually consider talking about it here on the show, but it's a little bit too far out of our, uh, yeah. out of our wheelhouse. <laughs> we'll save that for a special episode. Uh, yeah, it's very fascinating, though. The technical details of those mm, exploits yeah. are really cool. So I love talking about it. Anyway, uh, yeah, so that's that's that article. Um, all right, uh, next item I have is uh, a, a very, a, gosh, I don't even know how to describe this one. Um, so it's another Hackaday article. Uh, I guess you can see which blogs I read. And uh -huh. uh, so this one is, uh, it comes from the, uh, what do they call it, the 34-3C conference? Yeah, 34-C3 mm -hmm. conference uh, over there in uh, Germany, I believe. And the uh, old Chaos Computer Club. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So someone uh, gave a presentation there about uh, security and nuclear weapons. And, you know, there's this uh, need for international standards uh, for nuclear weapons such that they can be guaranteed to be safe and, more importantly, that they can be verified by uh, independent sources to be both safe and compliant with standards. And in order to have a system where you can verify the compliance of other countries' nuclear weapons, you have to have standardized tools and instruments. And so 
Now you have this problem of, well, the instruments have to be uh, verifiable to be correct and accurate. So the general approach to this for other similar fields is the tools are built such that the, the instruments that are used to measure these things uh, can be mathematically or, or otherwise verified to be correct. And so this is a problem for uh, nuclear warheads because the instruments are very complex. And so these presenters came up with a way to use a 6502 with a very limited set of simple chips uh, attached to it to do uh, to create what's called a, a scintillation detector, which is a, one of the instruments used in, in verifying the, the safety and, and correctness of nuclear warheads. So detecting uh, cobalt-60 and various other things that, uh, that these warheads uh, produce. So uh, what's great is uh, they, needed, so they needed a 6502 with convenient uh, expandability to build this little scintillation detector. And well, where do you get one of those? Uh, turn, <laughs> turns out the Apple II is a, a pretty great platform if you want to glue uh, simple hardware onto a 6502. So they did that. They turned an Apple II into an instrument for verifying the sanctity of nuclear warheads. And they have created a little uh, graphical interface for it. And so it graphs the cobalt-60 emissions that are detected by the scintillator circuit. And it's lovely and adorable and also kind of terrifying. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the uh, impetus behind it is pretty noble, which is that the 6502 being so simple, uh, it's you know, one of the simplest internal internally constructed CPUs uh, and is still produced. So... Uh, it's pretty straightforward to verify it all the way down to the transistors if that CPU is correct and hasn't been tampered with, you know, by malicious uh, uh, interlopers or, or, or such things, which is all, of course, very important when you're trying to prevent the apocalypse. Uh, so a uh, very interesting uh, uh, speech or talk that they gave at this conference, and we will uh, link to that. And uh, it's worth clicking on the link just to see the uh, screenshot of this histogram produced by this Apple II software of cobalt-60 emissions. It's interesting. In 1985, there was a Steve Jobs quote, <clears throat> um, and I'm reading from stevejobsdailyquote.com. I can't believe that's a website. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, he, he said, uh, I saw videotape that we weren't supposed to see. It was prepared for the Joint Chiefs of Staff by watching the tape. We discovered that, at least as of a few, a few years ago, every tactical nuclear weapon in Europe manned by U.S. personnel is targeted by an Apple II computer. <laughs> we didn't sell computers to the military. They went out and bought them at a dealer's, I guess. But it didn't make us feel good to know that our computers were being used to target nuclear weapons <laughs> in Europe. The only bright side of it was that at least they weren't Radio Shack TRS-80s. Thank <laughs> God for that. Yes. And once again, Spectre and Meltdown proof. So <laughs> there's <laughs> yeah. something to be said for, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, that is part of the point uh, that these, these presenters were making is that, you know, things like Spectre and Meltdown affect modern CPUs because they're mm. so complex. Yep. And the 6502 is so simple that you can verify and mathematically prove that no such vulnerabilities exist. Right. Cool stuff. It's, <laughs> it's deep, deep security stuff. Um <laughs> All right, uh, back to the lighter side now. Uh, this is timely because uh, Andy mentioned in the interview uh, how he was, his interest in BBSs was rekindled by Mike Whalen's uh, articles in Juice.js. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we're just in time for this one. This is a bit of an older news item, but uh, I think it's, it's still running as far as I can tell. Uh, it's called Ready Player Two, and this is kind of a BBS scavenger hunt. So the idea is you have to sign into various Apple II BBSs and collect clues and uh, solve an overarching puzzle. And there's a leaderboard, which we will link to over on applefritter.com. 
and uh, showing there's quite a few people participating already. Uh, so the competition is is tight and uh, there are uh, prizes. Uh, so if you find the sneaky hidden password in all of these different BBSs, then you can submit your entry for prizes. And uh, there are a bunch still remaining as of the 13th of January, this recording. So by the time we go live, hopefully this is still running. But if not, well, congratulations to everyone who won. Uh, but uh, the prizes remaining as of now are uh, a Wi uh, modem 232. That's the much coveted uh, Wi-Fi uh, RS-232 yeah, modem. Cool. Yeah, everybody wants one of those. They're hard to get right now. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a boxed copy of Knox Archaist up for sale once it's available. Uh, a JuiceGS subscription a uh, copy of Opus 2 software, and a boxed copy of the print shop, which nice. is delightful. So uh, this is, there's like I say, lots of participation. I think this is really clever. This is a great way to uh, engage people with BBSs and get people using them. And uh, I'm really glad that, uh, yeah, the people are doing this. Absolutely. And uh, who knows, with, if the apocalypse comes and the internet collapses, BBSs might uh, save us all. That's right. All right. Uh, next up, um, I put this in as a news item rather than a, a um, uh, feedback because it's kind of a, a great collection of stuff that I thought yeah. deserved a little more attention. So uh, mm -hmm. uh, listener uh, Jeremy Barhide, who some of you may have met at Kansas Fest last year, uh, all the way from Australia, and who's been a uh, an often often writes into us here at the show. Uh, he's got so he's got a personal collection like a lot of us, but he has been going the extra mile and he's been producing these uh, really detailed write ups on the various pieces of software that he's got. Uh, lots of pictures, history, all sorts of things. So and he's got a lot of really interesting things that I hadn't seen before. Uh, that we'll uh, we'll link to a few in the show notes here. But uh, one of them is, uh, for example, slide shop from Scholastic uh, Software. It is not that's not an item that. Uh, I had seen before. It looks vaguely familiar, so maybe I saw an ad for it or something. But uh, uh, so, yeah, more than just the software, he's got uh, screenshots and the whole history of it and everything. Uh, really nice write-ups. So uh, it's a great, great preservation effort. Uh, all right. Uh, well, I've been, I've been uh, stealing the mic here all afternoon. <laughs> Mike, why don't you dive in with this next item? Uh, yeah, so those of you who have been waiting for your chance to buy the CFFA 3000 or supplement your already existing collection of the cards, uh, good news. On the 6th of this month, uh, Rich Dreyer, who created the card, posted on his website that he's basically waiting for one more part from Aero Electronics, who is his supplier. He says it should be here soon. All the other parts and PCBs are already at the assembler in California. And uh, he's hoping to start pre-orders in late February. So, uh, yeah, hop on that uh, sign-up uh, list now if you're not already and go buy one when they come out. They tend to – the runs tend to go pretty quickly and, tend, and there's a lot of time between, you know, when the last one ended and the next one comes out. And I don't even know if he's going to do another one after this. So this might be your last chance. Get yeah. on the train. Yeah, I'm seriously considering jumping on this, even though I literally do not have an Apple II in my house that I can put this in. Uh, the only physical, in <laughs> yeah, the only physical machine I have is the 2C Plus right now. But uh, mm -hmm. I do have a 2GS and a 2 Plus uh, in my dad's basement uh, that uh, someday will be in uh, in my hands again. And uh, yeah, who knows when that happens? If CFFAs will still be available or or what? So as we always say, so, on so useful. Yeah, it really it seems like if you've got slots, this it really does seem to be the the uh, overall best solution. It's Seems to do everything, and uh, as we always say on this show, you got to buy these things when they're available because these are all hobby projects. And who knows if you can buy them next month or the month after? That's right. 
All right. Well, Brutal Lux uh, decided apparently that John Brooks was having all the fun over uh, upgrading Protoss, and uh, they decided to <laughs> uh, do it themselves. What's going on here? Yeah, I noticed this over on uh, the Call Apple uh, website. Um, uh, it looks like they've announced a, a proof of concept uh, project. This is a DOS 4.4 and Muffin for DOS 3.3 to 4.4. Um, this has been released and it's now available for download from the website. It's free according to the posting. Uh, this is a proof of concept project at this point. It's a DOS upgrade. So the the, the text on on Brutal Deluxe's webpage says that uh, so you can download DOS 3.4 below. Uh, DOS 3.4 is like the OS code of DOS 4.4 with the RWTS routines of DOS 3.3. Um, it looks like there's a whole bunch of upgrades. I'm, I'm having a little bit trouble of uh, trouble parsing what's going to be all that useful here. But yeah, you should definitely check out this project because who doesn't need a new version of DOS for your Apple II, right? Yeah, I, I've been trying to follow this a little bit. And yeah, it is a bit confusing, but I think, uh, yeah, I think they have big plans for it. I think it sounds like they're going to start adding, you know, uh, better three and a half inch disk support and hard drive support, maybe uh, things like that. I think, uh, I think they're going somewhere with this. Uh, so we'll be following that for sure. And uh, it's also amusing that the announcement of this over on the Apple II Enthusiasts Facebook group started a flame war between DOS 3.3 people and ProDOS people. So, oh, my God. Yeah, that was quite a thread. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I would just like to say, everybody calm down. <laughs> it's been 40 years. Let it go. Take a deep breath. It'll be fine. <laughs> yes. Seriously. <laughs> people, so people got pretty upset about ProDOS. <laughs> yeah. Screw you, Protoss. <laughs> yeah, those, uh, those old injuries sometimes never heal, I guess. Mm, yeah. Anyway, so I'm sure Carrington will be happy because he's a Protoss <laughs> 3.3 person. So now, now he gets to have an update too. Uh, well, and since uh, since we're in the midst of, of Flame Wars, uh, I'm going <laughs> to jump ahead here. And uh, this is literally breaking news. Uh, as we were putting together the show notes uh, to prepare for this recording, I literally got an email from John Brooks uh, saying that there is a Protoss 242 update now in beta. Oh, of no. <laughs> yeah, of course, John Brooks recently uh, put out uh, Protoss 2.41, which has lots of great features. We've talked about it a lot here, or 2.4 and 2.41, mm -hmm. in fact. And so 2.42 is uh, now in beta, and uh, a number of uh, bug fixes in that, uh, including uh, a problem related to having more than 255 files in a directory, and uh, Bitsy by the uh, the by program that came with 2.4 would not work on an Apple Talk workstation card or with an Apple Talk workstation card. It now does. And Bitsy by also now works on a Mac LC with uh, a 2E card. Um, a few updates. Uh, the, the programs that come with it, uh, IDT Pro has been updated, uh, Copy2 Plus has been updated, and some Cat Doctor utilities have been added, and uh, some fixes to the Thunderclock uh, driver so that it supports years up to uh, 2023. So lots of good little things there if you're a ProDOS user. Take down those DOS 4.4 guys. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we seem to have a bit of an arms race now in That's operating right. systems. But uh, sure. once again, everybody calm down. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just all be nice to each other, shall we? <laughs> uh, all right. Speaking of updater, updates, Mike, uh, what's going on with Virtual 2? Yeah, so um, the, the Virtual virtual 2, uh, the Apple 2 emulator for Mac 
uh, has gone 64-bit with its uh, version 8.0 release. Um, the, and there are a bunch of other features that have been added as well. I guess this is a pretty big jump forward. And then shortly after 8.0 came out, 8.0.1 came out with a couple of uh, bug fixes to the bug fixes. Um, so run right out and get that. And if you if you haven't purchased this yet, you really should, because as, as far as I can tell, it's the best uh, local um, emulator for your Mac for 8-bit Apple IIs. Yeah, for sure. There was a, a thread on this on Facebook recently, too. Uh, a, new, uh, a new member of the community had come in and asked about the state of emulators on Windows, and uh, f- frankly, all of, them, all of them have some significant issue. You know, Apple Win seems to be the most favored one, but it doesn't support mice properly, and there's all these other issues with all the various ones. So we're we're pretty lucky over on the Mac side that uh, Virtual Two is just hands down the right choice. Um, and uh, except you know, I, I guess if you're doing EDD stuff or whatever, you might be using Open Emulator, or if you need like Apple Two C emulation or something, you might need to use other specific ones. But for general purpose, Apple Two E enhanced emulation, I think Virtual Two is just hands down the one to use. So mm-hmm. yes, please buy it and please give money to the author because he continues to update it. You know, so many years after it was released, which is very important in the Mac world where, you know, Apple routinely breaks everything every few months with some update. <laughs> uh, as I discovered uh, further down, in the show, we have a news item <laughs> we'll about that, that. that we'll get to. Uh, all right. Uh, call Apple, Mike. What's going on there? Yeah, so they've released their winter 2017 issue. Um, Bill Martins posted this on January 4th. Uh, you can, if you're not a member, um, I think you need to be one to, to get it. It's free PDF. Well, free with your membership to call Apple. Um, and the latest issue includes articles on, um, the Waz factor, uh, which I think is an interview with Waz, uh, great Apple II hardware products that they came across from 2017. The best way to preserve Macintosh software from floppy, um, uh, talk about Eamon 8.0, the old adventure text adventure games from, uh, the, the Eamon adventures, I think they were called. Um, I guess CompuServe shut down in 2017. I didn't know that. Did you know mm-hmm. that? Yeah, I think I, I did hear about that. Uh, yeah. And there was some debate about whether the uh, archives were saved. Hmm. I mean, I, obviously it hadn't been the CompuServe we used to know and love for quite a few years, but it's still sad to hear that it's gone entirely. Um, yeah, I was actually surprised it still existed. <laughs> yeah, I read about it over on Boing Boing. I think it was still operating as a website or something, uh, and they still had all the old archives uh, from, them, from the forums and oh. stuff uh, on there. But uh, yeah, it's all been taken down now, so there's oh, wow. some, some question as to whether it's been preserved or not. Oh, no. Well, and they also have a nice write-up for uh, WASFest 2017 S7D2. It's a recap, so go get that PDF and, uh, yeah, sign up for a membership over at Call Apple. Excellent. Uh, is it true that the Apple IIe is 35 years old? <laughs> Why, yes, Quinn, it is. In fact, on uh, January 19th of this month, both uh, the IIe and the Lisa were announced in 1983. Um, and if you want to relive some of that glory, uh, Byte Magazine reviewed uh, both the Lisa and the 2E in the February 1983 issue, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So happy birthday to the most popular version of Apple II. Hmm. I don't think I realized that the 2E and the Lisa came out in the same year, uh, and it's inter- I always found it interesting that the 2C and the Mac came out in the same year as well. Uh, it's there's such different beasts and one of them just seems decades ahead of the other in terms of technology. So it's interesting that both lines were running so parallel. 
Yeah, well, you know, one was supporting the other, even if Jobs didn't <laughs> want to admit it. <laughs> uh-huh, that's right. Yeah, for all the advancedness of the Macintosh, <laughs> they weren't making any money with them. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so the TUI uh, ran for 10 years um, before finally being retired in 93. And I think uh, Dr. Uh, Stephen Weirich over at uh, Apple2History.org has a nice write-up on why it happened to end in 93. And his supposition, I think, is I think is that the only reason it didn't continue, um, well, I mean, I'm sure there was some financial ones, but um, was that that's when Microsoft's license for uh, AppleSoft Basic ran out. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize yeah. that. Huh. Yep. And then they, they think it probably would have been very expensive to continue to license it. Um, <laughs> so yeah. I don't know if there's any truth any. Truth to that, and so far no proof has, has been found, but we're still waiting for, you know, that, that deep throat call that will <laughs> reveal all the secrets. Yeah, it's probably one of those things where there was a lot of factors for shutting it down. Yeah, and, well, uh, and he did say that, like, you know, in, in I guess, 92, like 100,000, something like that, um, 100,000 twoies had shipped and, and or the year before. Um, it was a hundred thousand and it dropped to like 30,000. So yeah. there's, there's quite a big drop off in, in sales year, yeah. year over year. It is. Uh, that's one of my favorite Apple II factoids, actually, that in 1993, you know, when PC users were playing Wing Commander with Sound Blasters and VGA, you could go into a store and buy a brand new Apple IIe. <laughs> right, <laughs> which is a chip from like 1970. Yeah, which is basically unchanged from the late 70s as far as technology. And, right. <laughs> uh, that's that's pretty remarkable. Uh, yeah. And of course, that fact is why the Apple II was the longest uh, running computer ever produced. Yeah, and I'm sure ever that ever will be because, you know, now things change so fast. Okay, so all of you Atari and uh, Commodore and DEC and all these other companies, fans who have reasons for why your computer ran longer, you can mm-hmm. just go, go ahead and send your hate mail to Quinn. <laughs> yes. Oh, I know. Well, the Commodore people love <laughs> to claim how the Commodore 64 was the most successful or whatever computer <laughs> of all time. And I think it was the most uh, most produced single model. Uh, but to mm-hmm. do that, you have to draw a pretty arbitrary line that all the ver- versions of the Apple II are different models. Uh, but I, uh, I, I reject that arbitrary definition and support. <laughs> apply my own arbitrary definition that the Apple II uh, and all of its permutations are in fact one computer and thus the longest produced and most successful personal computer in history. Everybody just calm down. <laughs> That's right. It's all going to be okay. Uh, QED. All right, moving right along. Uh, glad I solved that uh, flame war once and for all. Mm, yes. Make a note of it. January 13th, 2018. That's right. Quinn ended the today. home computer wars finally. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of things changing quickly, uh, High Sierra recently came about, and with it, the recent uh, Spectre and Meltdown oh. patches, which are very important for people to do install. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, as is tradition, uh, the macOS upgrade uh, seems to have broken a lot of things. Uh, it, you know, everything not made by Apple breaks every time macOS is updated, and uh, a lot of stuff that is made by Apple breaks. Uh, in this in this case, this was my personal experience. I don't know if other people uh, had trouble, but I wanted to warn people. So I was trying to help 4am. Um, he's working on a project and I wanted to he would need someone with a 2C plus to test some stuff. So I did, but it required getting ADT Pro up and running again, which I hadn't done since upgrading to High Sierra. And my FTDI USB serial driver uh, stopped working with High Sierra. So I upgraded that and then ADT Pro 
uh, the latest version 2.02 no longer worked. It just refused to see the serial port. And the serial port does show up in slash dev uh, if you go into a terminal, which according to the ADT Pro documentation is all that is needed. Uh, if, you know, if, if you can see it in slash dev, then you know it's that the driver is working. So I could see my, uh, my USB serial device in slash dev, but you, uh, ADT Pro refused to see it. So I don't know if it's a bug in ADT Pro or if there's something else amiss, uh, but curiously, ADT Pro 2.01 worked perfectly. So yeah, amazingly, I, I happen to still have that lying around and on a Lark, I tried it and it worked. So I would say if you're on High Sierra and you have ADT Pro working, uh, don't touch anything. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know uh, if there's going to be a, another patch there or not, but uh, uh, all right, uh, moving right along. Um, Mark um, uh, wrote in of yeah, of uh, 6502 Workshop fame, wrote in to tell us that uh, Nox Archaist, the Kickstarter that we talked about recently, uh, has is rebooting. Now, this is kind of an old news item, but we just missed the October show with it, uh, which was kind of the last one before our <laughs> unexpected hiatus there. So we'll cover it now just in case anyone missed sure. the news. The uh, Nox Archaist Kickstarter did not hit their goal, uh, but the results were really encouraging. So they will be doing it again. Uh, they're just going to kind of regroup and uh, maybe be a little closer to release uh, before starting that again. So, of course, as soon as that is uh, uh, running again, I'm, uh, we will announce it here. And uh, I'm sure there will be lots of great rewards. Uh, one of the great things about their original Kickstarter was the rewards, you know, name a town after yourself or, you know, be the bartender in the pub or there's all kinds of great stuff. So yeah. I'm sure that will all be back and uh, we will talk about it here on the show. Yeah, we do know that uh, other Kickstarter projects for similar vintage or retro uh, software projects, games and things like that have been successful. So there's no reason why this one can't be as well. Yeah, I think it will be. It's I think these retro ones are tricky. You have to hit the sweet spot of the public consciousness and you have to get just the right amount of press. And mm -hmm. yeah, I think a lot of them that are successful, they get lucky with a mention on, you know, Boing Boing or some other popular uh, blog. And that really makes the difference. So yeah. Uh, all right, Mike, uh, let's talk uh, Prince of Persia. Okay, well, um, obviously over the past few years, uh, Prince of Persia has been talked about a lot. Uh, Jordan Mechner has been active on Twitter and uh, social media, and he likes to talk about um, his games. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Prince of Persia is, is one of the most popular ones, I think. Um, and I, I don't know that there's anything entirely new in this article, but if you're just interested in, in how he did the, the, the animation, the rotoscoping and things like that, there's a short little article over on Forbes where he discusses the specifics, and it's a quick, easy, and fun read. So check that out. Cool. Uh, I hope there's a link to the video of uh, Jordan Mechner's brother jumping over sidewalks and things. Cause Indeed, there is. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Good. That's any excuse to watch that again. It's right. um, it's amazing to see a human do those moves, and you're like, oh my gosh, it's Prince of Persia. <laughs> like it, it makes you appreciate how good the rotoscoping was because it oh, really yeah. does look like the little Prince of Persia dude jumping over a sidewalk. And remember, he did this when he was. What, 15, 16, mm -hmm. something like that? So, yeah. Crazy. Yes. Once again, all my excuses for not being a successful game developer at 16 uh, are <laughs> shot down. Uh, all right. Uh, Jason Scott uh, has his own podcast. Is that, uh, tell me, tell me this is true, Mike. Yeah. He's got, uh, he's got one called Jason Scott Explains It All or something like that. Hang on. I know. Uh, ah, 
Jason Scott is sorry, I'm on his Patreon page. Ah, Jason Scott is, is yeah. So he's making one called Jason Scott talks his way out of it, and, <laughs> and he <laughs> he's trying to talk his way out of debt. He's uh, making no bones about that this is what he's doing and why he's doing it. Um, he talks about his experiences on stage as a public speaker and his, um, you know, as a hacker and a retro computer person and historian and all that stuff. And I, he's an employee at the archive.org, so he's got some very interesting stories. Have you listened to any of these, Quinn? I have not had a chance yet, but it is on my to-do list. He's a very entertaining guy. Yeah, definitely check that one out. And also Benj Edwards, who's uh, another retro tech writer. I think he's at time.com, maybe. Yeah, I've seen his byline somewhere, yeah. Yeah, he's fairly high profile. Um, He's on Twitter a lot and has a lot of neat stuff uh, to talk about and and post. Uh, He has also created one. Um, His uh, podcast only has two episodes so far. Uh, It's called The um, Culture of Tech. And uh, like I said, only two episodes, but they're fairly, I think, uh, um, big ones. Uh, f- the first interviewee was Waz, mm-hmm. and he followed that up with uh, Richard Garriott. So, um, yeah, uh, certainly right up our alley. Hmm. Excellent. Uh, yeah, and while speaking of podcasts and sort of new ones, uh, we should uh, give a quick shout out to the uh, Apple Time Warp uh, podcast, uh, mm-hmm. the, the brainchild of, uh, of John Romero. It's the, yeah, it's the uh, very, very, very rarely updated, uh, but <laughs> very good when it is podcast. Uh, yes. So uh, yeah, he saves it up for the big ones, and uh, yeah, you uh, you won't want to miss the latest uh, three parter with a uh, legendary Apple II programmer. Mm. Oh, and I, I don't have, I can't believe we haven't mentioned this one. I don't think the Eaten by a Gru with um, hmm. Carrington and uh, that. That Atari, Boo Atari, Kevin Savins. What's his guy? Seven Gavits? Kevin Kevin? Something like Seven. Carvin Gavits? I don't know. There you go. Yeah. Uh, They talk about, uh, they they play through um, Infocom games and Mm -hmm. talk about it. And it's really kind of okay, I guess. I mean, I don't want to give Kevin too much credit, but, you know, (laughs) if you're bored, I'm kidding. It's awesome. Yes, it is good. It is good. And uh, you might find one of your co-hosts making a guest appearance in the near future. What? Uh, Maybe. I can't promise anything. (laughs) That's okay. I think Mm -hmm. I might have been on Antic or something. Mm -hmm. Did you have to take a shower after that? (laughs) I sure did. (laughs) The pancakes were good, though. (laughs) Uh, You and your scanline interrupts. All right. Uh, (laughs) I think that's all our news items, uh, unless you have any more you want to mention. I'm hilarious. That's what oh, I want to mention. Yes, you, yes you are hilarious. <laughs> uh, no, I think that's good. Okay. Uh, well, uh, how about we do another tech segment? Fasten your seat bits and warm up your soldering irons. It's time to talk tech. All right. Uh, last month, I did a quick rundown on the fast graphics path on the 2GS. Mm. Uh, I mm. talked about uh, memory shadowing from, you know, uh, bank one into bank E1, and then moving the stack onto bank uh, one, and then pushing your pixels onto the stack, and then getting them shadowed into memory, because pushing on stack is super fast, and LDAing and STing into bank E1 is super slow. Uh, <laughs> so that, I don't know what that voice Real was. basic I, stuff. Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing there. Anyway, uh, so that's that's sort of uh, uh, a very common technique, and one uh, that outlined by uh, Brutal Deluxe in the Mr. Sprite write-up, which we linked to last month. 
And uh, so uh, the legend John Brooks wrote in to kind of supplement that with uh, some additional techniques, and it was a really great email. So I'm going to do my best to summarize uh, the stuff that he included in there, some additional uh, variations on that technique and uh, other sort of pro tips for writing fast 2GS software. John Brooks, of course, of Rastan and Tomahawk GS fame, and more recently of Protoss 2.4. So uh, let's see, the first one that he listed was uh, uh, SoftSwitch CO68 is a good one to know. Uh, that's kind of, the 2GS has some neat things in that it's, while it is completely backward compatible, they also added a bunch of stuff that actually can help uh, with doing 8-bit stuff or doing things that overlap with the 8-bit world. One of those is CO68, which is a uh, combined uh, soft switch that has uh, a lot of the memory control switches in it. So things that used to take two different soft switches, uh, you know, involving the aux banks of memory and so on on the, on the 8-bits uh, can all be done with uh, a single loader store. So that's a good tip. Uh, another thing he, he recommends is avoiding 8-bit copies, uh, not just because you're, of course, moving half as much data, but, uh, you know, to avoid tempting instructions like MVN and MVP on the 65.8.16 because in addition to only moving 8-bit chunks, uh, they're also incurring twice as many 1 megahertz stalls because of the extra writes. So... Uh, minimizing the count of writes is as important as minimizing uh, or maximizing the size of those writes. So uh, that's a good tip. Uh, He also points out that uh, memory shadowing uh, works on all memory banks, Uh, contrary to kind of what is sort of implied by the uh, 2GS uh, hardware reference, the you know, where they talk a lot about shadowing 0 and 1 to E0 and E1, but in fact, you can shadow all banks. And so he suggests that as a good way to get uh, multiple frame buffers and things like that. Uh, good tip there. Uh, he also points out uh, uh, some alternate uh, blitting techniques and also just fast uh, memory techniques for writing to other banks. And uh, he recommends uh, TSB, test and set bit. Uh, he says that's actually the fastest way to uh, write uh absolute values to, uh, uh, or using ad- absolute addressing is actually the f- quickest way, especially for, uh, particularly for banks, uh, where the, uh, direct page and stack can't reach. So if you need to write into, you know, those alternate frame buffers or things like that. So good tip. Uh, don't forget about TSB. Uh, and so we talked about, uh, last month about the Mr. Sprite techniques where, you know, after setting the stack to point, uh, into the video memory and then shadowing it to bank E1 for the super high res page, uh, Mr. Sprite, uh, then loads, uh, your bit patterns that you want to render into, uh, the registers, uh, X, Y, uh, A, and even, uh, D direct page register. And then using pushes to, to push those bit patterns. Um, well, if you can't fit all of your bit patterns in just four registers, uh, you know, we sh- you can also use push effective address. Uh, and this is the technique also mentioned in the uh, Apple TechNote GS70 that uh, I mentioned last month. So, uh, yeah, don't forget uh, PEA, push effective address. It's a very good one. It's not quite as fast as uh, PHX and PHY and so on, but uh, much, much more flexible. So a good choice in a lot of cases. And uh, John also mentions uh, push effective indirect, which is something I don't think we mentioned at all last month, which is uh, allows you to push uh, an indirect, uh, allows you to do an indirect lookup to fetch the data to the, that you then push uh, onto your stack. And that uh, is really powerful because it lets you, lets you read from other areas in memory uh, to do your pushing and not just use constant values. Uh, and so he recommends that for doing things like scrolling, uh, which he says is how the scrolling in uh, Rastan was done. That's a great tip. And uh, next one here is uh, 
Uh, so we talked pretty much exclusively about using the stack as a fast way to write pixels, but you can also use the direct page and various direct page instructions to do that. And the nice thing about that is that then your stack is still available. So you can use uh, your stack for, as he suggests, uh, saving backgrounds, which if you're going to be writing sprites over a background, you need to save those background images. And the stack is a very fast way to do that. So. Uh, so he uh, prefers to use the remap the direct page into video memory instead of the stack and use the direct page instructions uh, to write quickly there and save the stack for uh, saving backgrounds, which is a great technique. And uh, I had talked about trying to trying to research the history of this technique a little bit or these this family of techniques and uh, I didn't come up with much uh, aside from the tech note, which dated to uh, 1988 or 89 and uh, yeah, John points out that uh, the development community on the GS was using this stuff uh, probably as much as two years before that. So uh, the tech note was pretty behind what developers were doing. Uh, so he mentions uh, using these techniques, for example, for the 3200 color uh, splash screen in Tomahawk GS and, of course, all these techniques in Rastan. And uh, uh, he believes he may have been the first person to use a lot of these techniques. Uh, it's also possible that uh, Berger Becky... Uh, sort of developed them in parallel. She was doing a lot of uh, sophisticated things there as well in the GS at the time. And uh, he points out that FTA actually reverse engineered Tomahawk GS for uh, a lot of their fast rendering techniques in their uh, demos. So uh, that was a lot, but uh, it was a great email and had a lot of great information in it that uh, any two GS programmers out there uh, should, uh, yeah, read up on. So thanks for that, John. And uh, that's it for uh, the tech segment. us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. Uh, let's see. So do you have any feedback, Mike? Uh, let's see. Someone wrote in to us, um, and I don't know who specifically this was. They didn't leave their name, but it was um, uh, from going back to September when we interviewed Mark uh, Lemmert the mayor, um, about Knox Arcade's the Kickstarter the first time around. Uh, this is from NTV Prime. Uh, this, they're a group of Intellivision gamers. Um, and they they wrote and said, a great episode as usual. Your POV on publishers versus programmers and soft talk was spot on. As fans of the Intellivision console, along with the Apple II, it reminded us of what Mattel Electronics did with the original Intellivision developers. They were labeled the Blue Sky Rangers instead of allowing their names to be attached to the games that they created, which really pushed them to create Activision and iMagic and other independent venues. Anyway, great stuff. Thanks for producing it. So thanks, guys. We appreciate you listening. Yeah, I was actually uh, an Intellivision person myself back in the day. And uh, yeah. for a while, I was following the uh, Intellivisionaries, which is an excellent mm, yep. podcast if you're into Intellivision. Uh, I think I only stopped listening because the episodes are super long. <laughs> six or six or eight hours. Long yeah, or it's great content, but yeah, there's only so many hours in a day. And uh, even with my... It's going to cost you a day. Yeah. yeah, I have a lengthy commute, but even with that, I couldn't quite get through six or, or seven hour podcasts, but uh, they're beautifully produced. Uh, one of the uh, one of the people that does the show is a, an electronic uh, music producer, and so the music in it is fantastic. And uh, they have a lot of great interviews with all the Blue Sky Rangers and uh, uh, yeah, really terrific podcast if you are a fan of the television and garrett wrote in to ask us why datasoft was horrible um and i you know i think that started as a joke over on the podcast i did with carrington vanston uh for a while called no quarter where we talked about arcade games and we were 
complaining about uh, it may have been Robocop or one of those it was uh, it felt like one of those generic games and and one of us mentioned that yeah data soft also made horrible Apple II games and it's sort of stuck and honestly I don't I was looking through the through uh, internet stuff the other day and I couldn't even remember if it was data soft data most or data east that <laughs> I thought was horrible because mm. all of them seemed kind of a lot of those games are just like you know just like the Kung Fu Master was not good and, mm-hmm. and Commando and, you know, stuff like that where they took popular titles of the day and I don't even know if they were legally, you know, <laughs> properly licensed but made kind of really bad ripoffs. And, and like, I remember some of these games having, like, bad sound and graphics for the Apple II, which is really saying something because the Apple II was not known for having great capabilities in any way and um, to to get reviews that these games were bad. Uh, but it may not have been Datamost or Datasoft. It may have been one of the other two. So <laughs> if you love Datasoft, I apologize. <laughs> yeah, there was definitely a lot of schlocky porting going on uh, at the time. Uh, I think I actually, I liked Robocop, but I don't remember uh, some of those other ports, whether they were they were good or not. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, one of those one of those companies, I forget which one, uh, the, the company that did... Um, they did RoboCop. I think also did uh, Renegades and uh, a couple other games. They were doing a lot of uh, double high res stuff uh, at a time when you know, nobody else was. So uh, I think uh, uh, the gameplay wasn't good, but they were doing. They had clearly they had someone on staff who who could do double high res. So they had a, a decent double high res engine and uh, were doing a lot of stuff that looked really nice. Which of course <laughs> Even if it didn't play well. <laughs> yeah, which you know that sells games, but uh, it was it was good to see that. Um, yeah, quick shout out to uh, 4AM's Twitter feed if, if anyone hasn't been following it. Uh, he's been doing more uh, edutainment cracks and he posted some screenshots lately of uh, the Mother Goose series, which had amazing <laughs> double high-rise graphics, like on par with anything from, you know, the King's Quest games or Neuromancer or any of the other big double high-rise games. Um, yeah, the <laughs> Mother Goose educational games look mm-hmm. amazing. So uh, I always say those games didn't are, are super under underappreciated and uh, for further evidence of it well and you always knew when they found when they got their hands on somebody who actually knew what they were doing with double high res because mm-hmm. that was double high res is, is tricky I yeah think even even now it's it's real difficult and it's been around for long enough for people to dissect and try to understand and yeah. so whenever a company suddenly started churning out like beautiful gorgeous titles like that you knew mm-hmm. they they hired a they hired someone special yeah yeah they had a programmer who could do it or had an engine or something yeah yep. yeah and there were some great ones i mean the neuromancer game is fantastic mm-hmm. that's yes, one of my you know, when people ask what should I go to for double high res, that's my first my first go to is is Neuromancer. It's just a beautiful game. Even if Snow Crash was a better novel. <laughs> oh, wow! And that's how you got pick, kicked off the podcast. <laughs> Don't even start with me about Neil Stevenson versus William Gibson because <laughs> you will lose, sir. <laughs> What's on eBay, Quinn? Uh, nothing because we don't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you have an eBay item? I don't have an eBay. Item. I, th- I thought there was one. Hmm, no. Uh, is that, are we done with feedback? Is that it for feedback? <laughs> sure. That's, I don't think I want to delve into that much further. So, yeah, pull <laughs> that done. All right. Yeah, we didn't get much feedback because we were off the air for three months. So, that's right. <laughs> strangely, Both people of, didn't well, write. I mean, we did get emails going like, when are you going to publish again? Well, yes. now we're back to publishing. So, yeah. there you go. Yeah, I got a few sad tweets asking if we were gone. Aww. So, but we're not. We're back. Yay. Uh, all right. Uh, do you, I, I think that's, that's all I have for the show. Is there anything else you want to talk about, Mike? 
Um, no, just uh, thank you for everyone for listening and sticking around. Thanks to Ken and, and Andy for joining us. It was a great talk about JuiceJS. And I know that um, Patreon kind of got their wrists slapped after <laughs> trying to do naughty things with your money. And mm-hmm. we did lose some um, contributors uh, over that. And that's okay. We respect uh, your decision. Um, but if you do want to contribute, we are still on Patreon. And we really appreciate uh, the contributions. It helps us pay for bandwidth and storage space on the network and things like that. And um, uh, yeah, and uh, we will love you forever. Yeah, yeah. Patreon briefly tried to shift a bunch of fees over to, from us, the producers, over to people who, the patrons. And uh, yeah, there was a huge backlash about that for obvious reasons. Uh, we don't want people, we don't want you guys paying our fees for using their service. So Definitely. Uh, yeah, luckily they, they backed off of that. So if uh, if, if you uh, are, are all able to, we certainly appreciate you uh, becoming a uh, patron to help this yeah, show and, go. And if you do want to contribute and you don't like uh, Patreon, you can uh, send either Quinn or I um, um, a PayPal contribution. We'll take mm-hmm. those two. You can uh, just email us at um, podcast at open-apple.net and we'll uh, give you the information for that. Yep. We've got buttons on the uh, uh, blog, I believe, for that oh, as well. Too. Yeah. So right. we'll, we'll have links in the show notes as always. Yeah. So happy birthday, Apple IIe, and hopefully everyone has a better 2018 than they did at 2017. <laughs> yes. All right. Thanks, everyone. We will see you all next month. Bye, everybody. The Apple II, small, inexpensive, simple to use. The first computer an individual could take out of the box, plug in, and run. Bringing computing down to a personal level. One person, one computer. Throughout the world, more than three quarters of a million Apple IIs are being used the largest installed base of any computer manufacturer. With the most software and peripherals, all of this makes Apple the personal tool for a wide array of markets. Business. Home. Education. Science. But the personal computer market has not stood still. Advances in technology and design occur almost daily. Today, there are more than 100 personal computers to choose from. Apple maintains its leadership role by using advanced technology to improve the industry's number one product. To reaffirm its commitment to this winning product, Apple has enhanced the Apple II to meet consumers and dealers' broadening expectations about personal computing. Apple has taken the Apple II, refined its design, and added some of the most popular features available on personal computers. The result is the Apple IIe, a personal computer that is more reliable and easier to use. In fact, it's the most personal computer. In 1976, when uh, Waz and I designed the Apple II, What we tried to do was use the the -the state-of-the-art technology available to us at that time to create a product that had a greater value for a computer than had ever before been realized. And uh, I think we achieved that because Apple II went on to be the largest selling computer in the history of the world, and still is. But we want to continually bring this experience of using a computer to more and more people. 
And we embarked upon a program uh, approximately 24 months ago to take this best-selling computer in the world and increase its value even further by using the state-of-the-art technology available to us today that wasn't available in 1976. And uh, as a result, we've created the 2E. The same old 2, but implemented with 1983 technology. But you know, the 2E is better than the 2. And uh, my hat's off to the 2E team. It's better than Waz and I did in 1976. So what you're probably wondering is why we call it the Apple IIe and not the 2 plus plus or the uh, 2 plus extra plus or even Mary or Diana. Well, the E stands for enhanced. We've redesigned the Apple II, made it simpler, more reliable, and enhanced it with built-in features that are important to today's users. What we've done is to make the most popular personal computer ever used in business, home, schools, and laboratories even more useful for these markets. First, we made it more powerful to handle larger tasks and more sophisticated programs. The Apple IIe has 64K of user memory, and the ROM has been boosted to 16K. And we've added a powerful control program with BASIC built in, so the system comes up smart. We modified the keyboard to make it easier to use. It's now a standard typewriter keyboard with special keys. Easy cursor movement, tab function, caps lock, and a host of other additions, giving the keyboard a full 128 ASCII upper lowercase character set with 63 keys. Also, an upper lowercase display is standard, so you never have to add a lowercase accessory. And we're offering a low-cost, plug-in 80-column card, developed especially for the 2E. But that's not all. Improved peripheral ports make connecting cables to peripheral cards easier. You can even lock the top to keep prying fingers out. Plus, the 2E has an even more reliable design. We've dramatically decreased the number of components necessary on the motherboard which is to say we've increased reliability and made service even easier for you. The product's introduction has been carefully orchestrated to ensure that the 2E follows in the distinguished footsteps of the Apple II. In fact, to become the most personal. the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. This is Ken Gagne. And this is Andy Malloy. And you're, and you're listening, listening to, to Open, Open Apple. <laughs> <laughs> you laughed in the middle, Ken. <laughs>